Well, good morning. I guess everyone can hear me. Um, well, thanks for the intro, Casey. It's, uh, it's been nine years since I preached, and, uh, and so I suppose like anything that you wait almost a decade to do again, uh, I hope I'll you know, get the dust off of uh, my shoulders pretty quickly. And I wanted to say, too, thanks for, for being here this morning. If you're visiting, this is an interesting, uh, uh, interesting day to come, uh, but I hope you will be uh, blessed by what I have to say. Well, each spring, uh, Governor Stitt hosts foster families and, and their, uh, hosts foster kids and their families for games and an Easter egg hunt at the governor's mansion. This year, or last year, he extended an invitation to staffers and their families, including me. So the Saturday before Easter, Abby and I loaded up our car and drove down to the mansion. Our one-year-old, Wendy, who some of you know, had no idea what was going on, but she's up for anything. She had a blast. Margaret, by contrast, takes after her dad. She isn't as impressed by big crowds and hyperactivity. But when Abby and I said the phrase, Easter egg hunt, she lit up. Once we were there, though, I got cold feet about Margaret's participation. This was an event for foster families. So I made the executive decision that Margaret would have to watch from the sidelines. Big mistake. But not for the reasons you might expect. Just after I decided Margaret would watch, a senior staffer came up to me and said, get Margaret lined up. The hunt's about to start. I objected and muttered something about how Margaret needed to let the other kids have some fun. Someone close by me, Abby, told me to get over myself and let Margaret participate. I reluctantly agreed. As we approached the starting line, where what seemed like a thousand grade schoolers were lined up, foaming at the mouth, ready to lay claim to their share of the 1,100 eggs spread across the mansion grounds, I said, okay, Margaret, the hunt's about to start, and Miss Christiane said it's okay for you to participate. Have fun. Margaret looked up at me rather calmly, and if you know her, rather matter-of-factly, and said, but Dad, I don't have a basket. How am I supposed to pick up the eggs? I replied rather flippantly, don't worry about it. Pick them up, stuff them in your pockets. Bad idea, Dad. Margaret cocked her head up and peered into my soul and said, but Dad, that's not going to work. My pockets are too small. I won't be able to pick up any eggs. I need, I need a, and just as she was about to say, I think, a basket, I heard, ready, set, go. And the kids were off. Now, before I move on, I just have to say, I'm almost 35 years old. I have seen and participated in a lot of Easter egg hunts. And I have never seen anything like I saw that day at the mansion. What I witnessed was a no-holds-barred Easter egg hunt. Pushing, shoving, grabbing, all of that and more. And then there was Margaret, stuck not five feet from the starting line, sobbing, shaking, looking as if she'd seen a ghost, sad, disoriented, alone. Well, as soon as I saw her, I suppose I did what any half-decent dad would do. 
I decided to move toward her in haste. I wanted to wrap my arms around her and tell her that things would be okay, that we'd have a chance the next day to hunt Easter eggs with Grandma and at her aunt and uncle's, and that she could find some way to be happy for all those other kids who were already on a sugar high. But before I could get to her, the governor intervened. He took Margaret's hand. And as he did, he made a tossing motion to several staffers. They caught his drift. Soon, several eggs lay within Margaret's grasp. And she bent down, plucked them out of the grass, and put them in her, her tiny little pockets. And I caught a glimpse of Margaret. And do you know what she was doing? She was smiling from ear to ear. The look that spelled sadness, disorientation, loneliness, anguish, was all but gone, vanished, vanquished, melted away in an instant. The tears, which just moments before had been streaming down her face, they were already beginning to dry. Why? What accounts for that? Well, one thing, I think. She knew who the governor was. And when she saw him moving toward her on his grounds, she took his hand and walked with him. Or, better yet, he saw her, and he drew near to her. And as she took his hand, you could tell Margaret knew things were looking up. Life was not as sad as it seemed. With him, everything was going to be okay. Now, I won't surprise you if you've been around here for a while to learn that this morning, what I'm going to try and do is show you that the text Mary Alice just read for us tells a story we need to hear. It goes something like this. We live in a broken world, but there's joy and peace in Jesus. That's it. Nothing fancy, not hiding the ball. The joy and peace you're looking for, they're in Jesus, because Jesus himself is our joy and our peace. Well, if you're taking notes, Tony, I see you. If you're uh, hoping to follow along or you're just pretending to listen, uh, I'm going to try and unpack this big idea by answering and then trying to answer, by, by asking and trying to answer three big questions. First, why do we need the joy and peace of Jesus? Second, what are they? And third, no surprise, how do we get them? why we need them, what they are, and how to get them. Okay, first question. Why do we need the joy and peace of Jesus? I don't want to be flippant, but it's obvious, isn't it? We need the joy and peace of Jesus because we live in a dark and desolate world where life is often empty, chaotic, and out of whack rather than full, orderly, and in harmony. In fact, just last night, I was at dinner with friends when I got a call that Mark Burgett, an attorney and, and parachurch minister here in town, the man who offered me the job that I have today, passed away last night following an unexpected heart attack. He was 68. This is unscripted, uh, but uh, the man was obsessed with the resurrection. Uh, to the point of it being annoying. Um, but as Abby said to me last night, uh, through some tears, uh, she said he's with the resurrected Lord now. 
And he is. Well, if you're anything like me, I'd guess this life we're living has probably taken its toll on you, too. Perhaps it's made you feel sad and scattered, if not downright depressed and disoriented. If that's true, you're not alone. Just look around this room. For all the, gods, for all the good God's doing, and he's done and will do more, I know you, and you know me. Our lives are plagued by all kinds of sorrow and dislocation. Monotony, addiction, depression, death, deployment, marital conflict, family strife, financial difficulties, uncertainty, 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 uncertainty about your work, uncertainty about your schooling, uncertainty about the markets, our marriages, whether you have one or want one or want out of one, uncertainty about our money, bad small groups, bad small group leaders, uh, bad bosses, and if you're Clay Column, bad coffee. In many ways, the scene recorded in our text, which I promise we'll get to, at least as I read it, paints a similar picture, doesn't it? In it, we find the disciples, now well into their three-year journey with Jesus, learning that they will in just a little while, as Mary Alice had to read five or six or seven times, find themselves precisely where Margaret did, plunged into a dark and dangerous world. No, they're not going to be plunged into a mob of grade schoolers hell-bent on securing their share of Easter candy. Their fate is far more frightening. At Jesus' departure, which our text makes clear is imminent, the disciples are going to find themselves smack dab in the middle of a world that hates them. A world that verse 20 says will literally be rejoicing over the death of its king. A world, in other words, in which life will seemingly be characterized not by joy and peace, but by their opposites. But don't take my word for it. Jesus puts it this way, beginning in verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, in other words, listen up. I'm about to tell you something very important. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. And again, down in verse 32, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home. In the world, you will have tribulation. The word sorrow in these verses is the Greek word lipe, which commentator Frederick Dale Bruner translates as depression, because it characterizes the situation of loneliness, which is the lot of those whom Jesus has called out of the world, and who are yet in the world, and against whom the world is directed. I know that's a mouthful, but Bruner's translation drives home an important point, doesn't it? It reminds us not to psychologize or fictionalize the suffering and hardship the disciples endured. Just like our lives, so often marked by sadness and sorrow, tribulation and anguish, unexpected deaths, their lives were about to be turned upside down. They would be thrown out of the temple, persecuted, many, perhaps all of them, killed. 
sobbing and crying, depression and anguish, the text tells us. That would be their lot. These would win the day. Well, lesson new begin, another commentator has this to say about this. The disciples are thinking sorrowfully, he says, of their tribulations and not inquiring eagerly about the goal of Jesus' life and ministry. As is so often the case with those of us who follow Jesus, Newbegin says, the words for me displace the words for him. The disciple is concerned about his own security more than he is seeing his Savior. And we're no different, are we? When life gets hard or a relationship is strained or our children act out, what do we do? And we often make things worse by how we respond. I know I do. Pain in our marriages and we lash out or want out. Our children disobey, we raise our voices. A difficult diagnosis, pour another glass, pop a pill. Or as one counselor puts it, we trouble our trouble. We make bad things worse, which Abby assures me I'm quite good at. But St. Augustine was right, wasn't he? We were made for God, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in him. Especially when life gets hard, we would do well to remember this. The world tells us, of course, that the way to get joy and peace is by looking further down, further in. You do you. Live your own truth. Dance to the beat of your own drum. And though I couldn't find it, I'm sure the Moana choruses that we're singing in our house probably say something just like that. Find your own sail or something like that. But in reality, we need to look up. We need to look out so we can see Jesus moving toward us, offering us his hand and saying, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart because in me joy and peace are yours. Not only right now, but forever. And that brings us to our second question. What are the joy and peace of Jesus? I don't want to say too much about joy and peace generally, because Jesus has a lot to say about them. And for all the talking I like to do, I'd rather let him do it. One thing is clear in our passage, and it's that the joy about which Jesus speaks appears to have something to do with the joy the disciples will experience at Jesus' promised return in resurrection power. Jesus says it this way, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Well, thankfully, Jesus doesn't leave the disciples or us with these cryptic propositions, but illustrates his point rather plainly. Look at verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, Jesus says, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Newbegin again. Newbegin writes that the departure of Jesus isn't a bereavement whose pain is meant to be eased by the promise of a return, but the necessary condition of a greater good. 
Newbegin gets it right, I think. Like a mother who experiences the anguish of childbirth, Jesus' departure will mean the disciples will be plunged into despair. It's inevitable. But just as inevitable is the fact that when Jesus returns in resurrection power, their despair will be turned into ecstasy. Like a mother who, who forgets the anguish of labor because her baby has been born into the world. Like many of you, I've now been an eyewitness to the phenomenon of childbirth, twice. And if your experience was anything like mine, which maybe it wasn't, but uh, it included watching Abby come in and out of consciousness during labor, and then crying tears of joy when I caught that first glimpse of Margaret and Wendy, I suspect you'd agree that Jesus pretty much nails it on the head, doesn't he? Great anguish followed by great joy. Now, ladies, you may have a different take on this. Abby certainly did. Over the last couple weeks, as I've been preparing this sermon, I can't do it in two days like Casey, I've been blowing up Abby's evenings, unexpectedly butting into her quiet time after the kids have gone to bed to ask her strange questions like, babe, what does Jesus mean when he says, a little while? Do you have any idea? Or I'll try out a line or an illustration or a sermon title, and there were several that I had been told were really bad. Usually she'd just look up from her book and say something like, I'm really too tired for this. Or, yeah, uh, great idea, babe. Keep working on it. I'm sure it will make sense. Maybe. But when I read her Jesus' illustration about childbirth, she perked up. Yeah, right. I remember the anguish just fine, she said. Now, in all seriousness, no, though, what Jesus is doing here, I think, is telling us both that both anguish and joy are part and parcel of life in Christ. And we wouldn't want it any other way, would we? What would the light be without the darkness? The day without the night, Christmas with all the months in between. It's as if Jesus gives this illustration to reassure the disciples that although they will walk in darkness, they will see him again. And when they do, they'll have that deep, that feeling of deep, sustained pleasure that no one will be able to take from them. Now, let me quickly say a few things about peace. The peace which Jesus promises here certainly isn't the negative peace dictionaries seem to have in mind. If you Google it, you'll probably find some kind of a definition like the absence of conflict. No, the peace here is what Bruner describes as the peace of a promised clearer knowledge, both of God and of ourselves. Look back at verses 25 and following. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. It may strike you as odd to talk about peace in terms of knowledge, because we're so used to thinking and talking about peace 
in terms of a calm state of affairs, like the way you feel at the end of a fight or the conclusion of a war. But Brenner is on to something, isn't he? Not knowing things is a source of all kinds of trouble. Not knowing where you're going, not knowing where the bathroom is when you really need to go. Not remembering the name of the person you met in the foyer just this morning. Just mentioning these things probably gives one of you some anxiety. Well, think how much truer that is when the stakes are higher. When faced with the big questions, clearer knowledge is always a source of comfort, isn't it? And that's just what being with Jesus gives the disciples, clearer knowledge of God and of themselves. I love how the message, I know you can rebuke me after the service of reading from it, but I love how the message puts this in verse 29. You can follow along in your Bible and you'll get the idea. His disciples said, finally, you're giving it to us straight in plain talk. No more figures of speech. Now we know that you know everything. It all comes together in you. You won't have to put up with our questions anymore. We're convinced you came from God. Jesus answered them, Now you believe? See, clearer knowledge about God and of ourselves, it's a good thing, isn't it? But it can be dangerous. I went to seminary, so I know what I'm talking about. It can puff us up in pride and get us thinking that the peaceful life must be the life filled with information. Libraries filled with many leather-bound books. But that's not true. If it were, Jesus wouldn't have rebuked the disciples for boasting about all they supposedly knew. Like the disciples, we must be careful not to be overly certain of ourselves. After all, in the life of faith, it is God's action and not ours that's decisive. As John puts it elsewhere in his gospel, no one comes to Jesus unless the Father draws him. Well, like Margaret, we will never have peace as long as we're looking for it within ourselves. We must instead look up and look out because there's only one place in all the world where we can have peace, in Jesus and in his faithful, undying friendship to us, even unto death. And this gets us to our third and final question. How do we get them? How do we get the joy and peace of Jesus? We get them with him. Because Jesus himself is our joy and our peace. Let me explain what I mean and, and then I'll close. See, just a moment ago, we said that Jesus himself has gone away again. Unlike the disciples, we no longer see him. We can't talk to him. We can't hold his hand. So how can the answer to our how question have something to do with Jesus? Well, if you have a Bible, look back to chapter 16, beginning in verse 7 from the passage Casey preached a couple weeks ago. Listen to what Jesus has to say. I tell you the truth, it begins in verse 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he goes on. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. 
He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Did you hear it? I know this will give some of our more charismatic brothers heartburn, but it's undeniable. Here, Jesus says that the whole work of the Spirit is this, to make the joy and peace, indeed, the whole person and work of Jesus, real to us, to spotlight, as J.I. Packer puts it, to spotlight Jesus' glory before our spiritual eyes and of matchmaking between him and us. By the Spirit, Jesus is as real to you and me as he was to the first disciples who saw and walked with him. And how do we experience this? By asking. Look at verse 23. I'm going to read Brunner's translation, but you can follow along in your Bibles or in your order of worship. Beginning in verse 23. Amen, amen. I want to tell you something very important. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Up to this point, you have not really asked for anything in my name, but come on, ask, and you will receive, so that your joy may be filled to overflowing. Ask. That's it. If you want Jesus' joy and peace, ask him. And one more thing. Here, ask is a present imperative. Don't worry, you don't need to remember anything from schoolhouse rock for this to make sense. If you don't know what I'm talking about, when you get home, get on YouTube and, uh, I don't know, Conjunction Junction is great. I watched it last night. It just means, that, right, that this is a present imperative. It means that rather than reading this as ask, as a simple one-time exchange or command, it means we should be reading it like this, ask, ask, ask. And when you're done asking, ask some more. You see, a Christian is not someone who asks Jesus into their heart once and then twiddles their thumb until kingdom come. No. A Christian is a person whose whole life is bent on asking the Father everything in the name of Jesus. Ask, Jesus says, that your joy may be full. That said, I don't want to give you the impression that joy and peace are commodities Jesus gives us when we ask him. Life in Christ is not a one-time transaction. He's not a genie in a bottle doling out gifts at his master's command. No, joy and peace are not commodities. They're consequences. States of being, really. Born not primarily of knowing more about God, but of really, truly knowing him. Or as Paul puts it in Galatians 4, being known by him. This isn't just a cute turn of phrase. It's sound biblical theology. And in fact, it's the basis of everything I've said this morning. Do you believe that? Do you believe God knows you, gets your world, sees your suffering? Do you believe he's done something about it? That God is with you? That like the governor did with Margaret, that he's intervened? drawn near to you, that he's ready to take your hand in your time of need. If you don't, you should. But why? Well, for one, as Tim Keller likes to say, 
Don't you want this to be true? Even if you don't believe any of it, don't you want there to be a God who's with you, come what may, that sees you and draws near in your time of need? I know I do. But second, and this is more theological, you should believe that God is with you, that, he, that you're known by him because of the cross of Christ, because of what happened there. And what happened there? Well, there's a thousand things to say, aren't there? Mark Burgett would have had more than one. But if you hear anything this morning, hear this. What happened at Calvary was the abandonment of Jesus in his time of greatest need, the desertion of the disciples. There, Jesus was left to fend for himself, his closest friends scattering, each to his own home, leaving him in the lurch, totally alone on the darkest and most desolate of days. But he wasn't really alone, was he? Look at verse 32. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. And so it is with us. In the world, we will have tribulation. In 2023, we'll have tribulation. But take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. And how? How did he do it? How did Jesus overcome the world? Well, Luke tells us at the end of his gospel, doesn't he? Jesus overcame the world by committing his spirit where? Into the hands of the Father. Even in the face of death. You see, on the cross, Jesus didn't look down and in. He looked up and out. And he took the loving hand of his Father. And now... Raised in resurrection power, Christ draws near to you. He extends his hand. Take it. See that everything is going to be okay. For the Father himself loves you, even as he loves Christ. And he will not abandon you, even unto death. Well, John Newton, who you know is the author of Amazing Grace, puts it best. I probably could have gotten up here and read these two stanzas of uh, his hymn, Approach Approach My Soul, Thy Mercy Seat. Taylor probably knows it. But this is it. Bow down beneath a load of sin by Satan sorely pressed. By war without and fears within, I come to thee for rest. Be thou my shield and hiding place that sheltered near thy side. I may my fierce accuser face and tell him, Thou hast died. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are, of course, the God that has died. You're also the God that's been buried, raised, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he loves us just as you love us. I pray that in 2023, in a world filled with tribulation, a world that feels chaotic uh, inside of ourselves and outside, that we would believe and know that we're known by God, that he's drawn near to us, that he's reaching out his hand to us this morning, that we would take it 
and see that everything is going to be okay. Amen.